have your Bibles, you can open up to Joshua chapter 11. How we doing? Yeah? Sounds pretty, sounds pretty weak to me. Yeah, blessed. Fantastic. Anybody else? Nobody else. Oh my gosh. Jeez. All right. Well, we are in what? Revolutionized. Can I do? I knew that was you. All right, we're in Joshua chapter 11 tonight. Um, just to let you know, tonight is Joshua chapter 11 and chapter 12. The thing is, I'm not going to read or study with you chapter 12 tonight. That's your homework for this week. Don't give me that. And, um, and you know, as you read through it, you'll be like, oh, okay, I, I get why he gave us this as homework. So enjoy, all right? Joshua chapter 11, let me pray for us and we'll jump into the scriptures tonight. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you that tonight we can open up the scriptures and not just read about the history of Israel, but God, to be able to see the story that you've been writing from before time began. And God, to see the, to see the the impact and the power of your Holy Spirit working so many years ago, but God, also today, right now in our lives, that, that God, we could open this book that is over 2,000 years old, and you can speak to us as profoundly today as you did then. And so, God, here we are, your, your children, Father, your servants, the friends of our Savior. We pray tonight that your word would be guided by your spirit to our heart to hit the target. God, hit the target tonight. We may not even this evening know what we need, but, but God, you do. And we come not only with open hands, but Father, with open hearts, knowing that God, as you divinely guide your word to our heart, that it is going to bring forth the fruit of conviction and encouragement and strength and hope and wisdom and vision. And so, God, have your way tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Talmud says, the face of Moses was like the face of the sun, while the face of Joshua was like the face of the moon. And that, you know, might sound to you, by the way, the Talmud was the rabbinical conversation over uh, the Torah. So, you know, second century to fifth century BC, this was compiled by the, the rabbis, um, and it became kind of the interpretation of the law. And that may sound to you kind of like maybe Maybe a bit demeaning for Joshua, but the truth is this, it was a, a radical compliment as the rabbis just reflected on this great leader that God had raised up for the children of Israel and, and you know, someone who was given a really, really difficult responsibility. I mean, following in the footsteps of Moses uh, was probably something that it might sound good, but it probably was not something, you know, really desired because who in the world could ever compare to Moses. And you know, not that, not that Joshua, that was his intention to compare himself to Moses, the great leader, but they were big sandals to fill. 
And so, you know, as, as great as Moses wasn't, you know, John says it in his gospel account that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, and so Moses, you know, was this just immense, significant figure in the Old Testament. And Joshua, you know, I mean, he wasn't bad either. He wasn't bad either. He might not have been the sun, but, but maybe he was kind of like the moon. He was well-respected. And as you study this book, what you discover is that Joshua proved himself to be a couple of things. He proved himself to be a brilliant military strategist. Like, no doubt, as you read this book, you, you have to conclude that, I mean, this guy really did know how to conduct a military campaign. Um, but more than that, you know, he was also a man who walked with God, you know. I mean, most importantly, because as we'll see tonight, the strategy came from God anyway, and so minus God working in his life, he wouldn't have been much of a man. But with God working in his life, he was quite extraordinary. Um, and, you know, thank God it's the same thing for you and for me, right? I mean, we're not much apart from God. But with God is pretty awesome, isn't it? All right. There you guys are tonight. That, I'm glad to hear it. And, you know, he had a pretty significant, he had a pretty significant calling when you think about the condition of, you know, that geography of what would be called Israel, because remember, it was the land of Canaan. It wasn't Israel yet when they went into the land. Um, it was, of course, it was, of course, uh, bound on either side by two huge empires. To the south, it was the Egyptian empire, obviously one of the powerhouses of the ancient world, um, and a constant a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites later on. Um, but then to the north, there was the empire of Mesopotamia and the Assyrians. And so, you know, in between those, those bookends, you had this little tiny tract of land, really no bigger than the size of our Rhode Island. And that was, that was the, the, the Canaanite territory. It was a territory that was filled with a number of Canaanite tribes and 31 uh, city-states, fortified city-states that were overseen by 31 kings. And I just want to give you just a little bit of the picture because the reality is as we enter into this chapter, we're like right in the middle of this uh, extraordinary middle, uh, military campaign. Um, and it was significant, make no mistake about it, whether you know it or not, last week you studied... Uh, the southern, the aspect related to the southern part of the camp campaign. Tonight we're going to look a little bit at the campaign that dealt with the, the northern part of that territory. Um, but there were 31 city-states, fortified city-states. Um, it was, you know, no small accomplishment to step forward in faith and to see what God would do and you know, as a good military strategist, Joshua knew the best way to really uh, gain the victory was to divide and conquer. And so, like I said, as you were going through chapter 10, what you discovered last week was the first half of the military campaign, which was going into the southern part of that territory and conquering those city-states. Having divided the land now Joshua and the armies of Israel are going into the northern part of, 
um, what would be ultimately called Israel. And what we're going to see tonight is the culmination of this military campaign. I mean, it's a, it's a huge milestone. You know, a number of chapters ago, we were just with the Israelites crossing over the Jordan River and, you know, stepping into the fulfillment of the plan of God for Israel to inherit this promised land. And tonight what we see is just an extraordinary accomplishment where this uh, massive milestone is ultimately achieved. Tonight, as we consider the work of God through the children of Israel and Joshua as a military leader and as a mighty man of God, uh, we are also going to correlate these five things we're going to see tonight to the spirit-filled life. Because you remember, I mentioned to you that this whole story of Joshua and the Israelites going into the promised land is a picture. Remember I said that to you? It was a picture of what? The spirit-filled life. All right, one person knows tonight. The spirit, thank you for, thank you for remembering uh, it's a picture of the Spirit-filled life. Remember, um, oftentimes, as you, maybe like you sing some of the old hymns and, and they're about the promised land, uh, you can come away with the idea that the promised land is really talking about our inheritance, our heavenly inheritance. Well, that's really not the picture that God was painting uh, when the Israelites entered into the promised land. The land that was flowing with milk and honey was also a land that was filled with, with um, peoples that needed to be conquered. And when you and I are in heaven, all of the battles will be done. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's all I can say, right? You want those battles to be done. But in this life, we know that as we're entering into the promised land of the spirit-filled life, you know, there are, there are um, giants that need to be overcome. And so tonight what we're going to see is, yeah, we're going to look at the, the history of the nation of Israel and what God did through their lives, but we're going to see, I think, some really solid, profound um, principles for us as we have just the great opportunity as Christians to live a spirit-filled life. With all that being said, verse 1, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, so we're talking about like this is the rednecks, the, the red, this, for me, I read this, and I'm like, is, shouldn't this be the southern kingdom? Like, shouldn't this be the south because we got Jabin and Jobab and Billy Sue and, well, Billy Sue would be weird, but you know what I'm talking about. He said to Jobab, king of Maiden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, that's not an easy one to say, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country and in the Arabah, south of Chinneroth or Kinnereth, uh, which would be the Sea of Galilee, and in the lowland, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. Um, if I was a super old pastor, I'd make the joke and say, and the termites, but I don't go down that road anymore because my family told me not to. In the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. All right, all of that to say, we're talking about the northern part of modern day Israel. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, um, because, because that's what you used to call um, a a great number of troops back in the day. In number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots and all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So 
you know, you, you, you kind of obviously as you, you may, maybe close your eyes for a minute and, and read through this and, and picture it, like what you see is a coalition being amassed, right? And so this guy Jabin, he's the king of Hazor. This is the, this is the primary city, state, kingdom in the northern part of the area of Canaan. And so what this guy does is he has, I mean, obviously he's gotten the intel, right? These, these Israelites have come in, you know, this community of people numbering probably two to three million. So this is a, a massive migration of people into the land of Canaan. And he's gotten the intel about how it would seem that this God, Yahweh, has gone before them. And just like this God had done 40 years previously in parting the sea and you know, raining down manna from heaven and conquering Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Um, that is the same God who's giving them the victory today. And so he gets the intel, he knows he's in trouble, and the only way to really seemingly from his point of view secure the, the victory is to make some alliances, right? To have a confederation, to get the other kings of these city-states together to rally their their forces and to oppose these Israelites. I mean, you can see because you read through this chapter that this was like a final surge of spiritual opposition, right? Remember behind the veil, behind what is seen in the tangible world, there is the spiritual world and there was opposition. This was no doubt the adversary, the devil, rallying his forces, and Jabin was the guy who was leading the charge. Um, this was no small military alliance. Like, this was a big deal. In fact, Josephus, one of the great historians of antiquity, he said that, and we're not necessarily sure how he got this information, but um, he was a historian about a 1,000 years after this happened. He said that these forces numbered about 300,000 infantry, 10,000 more in cavalry, cavalry, that's, you know, that's an easy one to mistake, and then 20,000 chariots. So, so just picture that, right? I mean, when the Bible says it was a horde of troops, it was a horde of troops, 300,000 infantry maybe, 10,000 cavalry, and 20,000 chariots. It was an overwhelming scene. And I think, you know, if, if you're not walking in faith and you're one of the children of Israel, you're thinking, man, God, sometimes it, it feels like you're not very good at math. I mean, I mean, what's up with this? What is up with this? And, and you know, as you read the Old Testament, you see time and time again that, that the Israelites always seem to be outnumbered. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's just, uh, it's one of those things where you think, you, you, you know, if you're an Israelite, you just get used to the fact that, that you're always gonna be, you're always gonna be outnumbered. The enemy forces are just gonna be uh, a lot more than what you have. In fact, they're not just gonna be more in number, they're also gonna be more in size. And it makes you wonder sometimes, God, why, why is it that, your people seem to be put in these positions that, that almost feel like a position of weakness when you're a God of strength. And I would just say to you tonight, it's because his strength is perfected in our weakness. Like how would we otherwise know that it's God who's giving the victory unless we were in a position that, that from our perception wasn't a, wasn't a, a position of weakness? 
No, God intentionally allows us to be in situations where we are outnumbered, where, and I hate to use something that just seems to fit the context of Las Vegas, but I'll say it anyway, where the, where the chips are down, right? Where the chips are down, where the hand that we've been dealt is just not a good hand. It doesn't feel like a good hand. It doesn't certainly feel like we've got the upper hand in any stretch of the imagination. And God takes great joy in putting his children in these situations because you know when the chips are down, when the hand's not good that we've been dealt, God always comes through, doesn't he? Doesn't God always come through? Has God come through for you tonight? This is like a, this is like a, a final surge of opposition. Now, I just have to say, um, I just have to say, you know, I wonder if Joshua wasn't like, God, really? I mean, man, you know, we've, we've fought so hard. We've, we've overcome so many. Uh, why do we have to fight another battle? I mean, it just would seem 31 city-states, fortified cities would just seem like a lot to deal with. And it's just a reminder for us, spiritual, the spirit-filled life principle number one. The battle is not over until we get to heaven. All right? The battle is not over until we get to heaven. I think, you know, there are times where um, we think, man, you, you, you know, I'm just a little fatigued, God. I'm a little fatigued. And it's not just the battle on the outside. It is straight up the opposition on the inside. And I'm not even talking about the adversary. I'm talking about our own flesh. Because oftentimes, you know, that's where we feel most outnumbered. There are ways we think and things that we do and impulses that we have and struggles that we deal with. And sometimes it's like, man, God, you know, when is, when is the battle going to be over? Answer when we stand face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. In this life, in this life, the battle is perpetual. It is perpetual. That's why Jesus said, if you're thinking, and this is a paraphrase, he said, if you're thinking about being my disciple, you better count the cost. You better count the cost. No one builds a tower without first assessing what the cost is going to be because being a disciple for Jesus Christ is not for the faint-hearted. It's not for the faint-hearted. Maybe tonight, you know, you've just been a little fatigued. Maybe tonight you've plateaued a little bit in the spiritual battle. Maybe, you know, you've been in that place where it's like, man, one more giant to fight, one more adversary to deal with God. I just, I can't, I can't deal with it. I'm on I'm on, you know, my final fumes. I don't have any more strength. And I would say to you that that place of weakness is in, in fact a place of strength because as you look to the Lord and lean into him, he will come through for you, right? Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, here it was. They were in this position. Of course, you know, I mean, you're, you're thinking, well, what's going to happen here? What happens is what always seems to happen. God speaks to Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, what does he say, church? Yeah, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. This gets a little rugged here. You shall hamstring their horses. I know if you're a horse lover, man, that's going to be a little hard to hear. I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. And burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua... And all of his, let me, let me just say this first before we get into verse 7. Um, you know, I love how this guy was led by the Lord. I mean, he was just led by the Lord. When, when the, the moment came of difficulty and adversity, God always came through and gave his servant a word. You know, that, that's just good. 
I think that it's important for us to remember, you know, we don't have a lot of detail about what this looked like in Joshua's life, but I do have a sense that God spoke to Joshua because Joshua leaned into God, right? He leaned into God. What we've discovered about Joshua is, hey, the guy wasn't perfect. He's made some mistakes. And, you know, it seems to be the mistakes that he made uh, most often uh, were that, or was, that he failed to inquire of God. You know, he's already run into a couple difficult circumstances where he didn't pray first, he didn't pause first, he didn't look to God first. And so, you know, there were consequences because of that. And so, you know, we don't really have the details of how this looked, but I would, I, would, I would venture to say, and you can argue with me later if you want to, I would venture to say that as he was looking at this, this massive coalition that was amassing by, the, by these waters, he leaned into God and he looked to God for wisdom, for guidance, and for direction. And you know, when you do that, you, you have to know God's going to answer right? God's going to answer. God's going to be faithful. Tonight, you know, maybe you have some unanswered questions. Maybe you have some, maybe you have some big issues that you're dealing with. And, and, you know, I don't know what you're like. I know what I'm like. I'm, I'm a doer, right? I'm a doer. I'm a problem solver. You know, I get, sometimes I can, sometimes I can be excited about the problem because it's another challenge to resolve. But, I've also learned over the course of time that it's futility trying to resolve your problems without God. It's so much better, right? So much better. And sometimes, you know, I will just say this, like it's, it's problematic for men and women, but maybe even more so for men. Because we are the kind of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, shut up and get the job done, put your nose to the grindstone, you know, get to work on the problem, solve, solve the issue, and, you know, we can spend a lot of time and energy trying to fix things instead of just going to God and saying, hey, you know what, God? Can you help me with this one? You know, can you help me with this one? I'm, I'm, I'm in a quandary, right? I'm in a quandary. I've got some questions that haven't been answered. You know, I've spent a lot of energy. I've, I've been toiling. God, I've just been toiling. And, you know, I've, I've just kind of hit the end of myself and finding the end of myself, I'd like to find the beginning of you in this moment. And so, you know, when you do that, God is always faithful to come through. What I love here about this picture is, um, it is such a, a beautiful model of what God does. Joshua is spirit-led and he is strategic. Joshua is spirit-led and he is strategic. He is being led by God and he is also being given a strategy from God. I think sometimes, you know, we can live in this false dichotomy of like, well, you know, I mean, if you're really spirit-led, that means that you're not just going to have a plan. You're just going to wing it. You're just going to let it happen. And, and I would say, you know, God is a God of order. God is a, a God of order. And you just look at creation itself. You know, God speaks and there's life, but life grows on the trellis of God's order. And, you know... When God is working in our lives, he oftentimes will give us very ordered and strategic steps. Don't get me wrong tonight. I know that organization, while it is a good servant, it is also a horrible master. Because we can be in a place sometimes where we're just 
so determined to be strategic and ordered that we can just choke the spirit out of everything. But when God is working in our lives, what we oftentimes discover is he is the one that gives us the plan. You know, it's been said, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail, right? If you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. And so what Joshua does, instead of creating a a plan on his own, he goes to the Lord and God says, hey, Joshua, Josh, I got you, man. Don't fear them. Don't calculate according to the flesh. Don't perceive this like the, the world would lead you to perceive it because sometimes you know when the chips are down, when the cards we've been handed don't seem like they're, they're good, sometimes we start to spin, right? We get in that moment and we just become overwhelmed. We start to fear until we get our eyes back on the Lord. You know, Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, it's just so good. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And this is what God does. Check the strategy out. So Joshua and all of his warriors, were in verse 7, came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misrephoth Mayim and eastward, as far as the valley of Mizpah, and they struck them until he left none remaining, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses, I'll get to that in a second, it's a tough one, and burned their chariots with fire. So God gives the strategy, and by the way, the strategy was stealth, the strategy was knowledge, and the strategy was speed, right? And you, you see this pretty much consistently Uh, in Joshua's military strategy. He was strategic about being stealthy, right? I mean, he, and by that I just simply mean there was a, a very careful, carefully devised plan. You know, when he came upon his adversaries, um, he, did in, he did it in a way where um, they were just unprepared. And he was able to do that because he sought his wisdom from the Lord. You know, God wants you to get your plan from him. God wants you to have a, a, a strategy, I would say, spiritually. And the first aspect of that is that you're seeking your wisdom from the Lord. You know, you're pursuing God. The Bible says that we're not to, to, to walk in this world in a way that's just haphazard, but that we should walk circumspectly or wisely. We should be Uh, inclining our ear to the Lord, going to the word of God and having a good understanding of the way that God desires us to comport our life. You know, the Bible is clear that the word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. There was stealth, there was also knowledge. I, I love how Joshua was able to read the terrain. He was able to read the terrain, like even though he was new to this area that was called Canaan, He also was careful in studying the terrain. And I think it's just a reminder for us that we need to be able to know the terrain in a spiritual, uh, from a spiritual point of view as well. The Bible calls that being sober-minded. It calls it being sober-minded. It, it means that we're spiritually sharp. You know, it means that we're not just, uh, we don't have spiritual senses that have just been dulled either by a spiritual laziness or because we're just, uh, swept up in affections that are worldly, but no, there is a, a sharpness, a sharpness spiritually to us, like we get it. 
we get what is really going on. We're able to read the terrain every day. And you go into the workplace, you know, and, and, and all hell is breaking loose, you know, and your boss is on a rampage and your, your work companions are gossiping around the water cooler, if, you, if they have water coolers anymore. And, you know, you're just like surveying. You're not getting sucked into it. You're not swept up in it. You know, you're not all caught up in the madness of your boss or the gossip of your colleagues because you're reading the terrain. You know what's really happening, what's going on. And at the end of the day, the desire of God is to get into those hearts and minds. And so, listen, there's a, a sober-mindedness to you. You don't get to the end of the day looking back and think, man, God, I just got all swept up in a bunch of worldliness because when you started the day, you asked the Lord to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Like you started in prayer, you started in the word. We'll get to that in just a second. And, you know, as you launched out, you got in your car, you're headed to work, you're like, God, suit me up in the full armor. Suit me up in the full armor. God, I don't want to be a victim today. I don't want to be picked off by the enemy. I don't want to be distracted today. You have divinely ordained me to be working in this casino, to be a light for the glory of the gospel. And so shine through my life. God, shine through my life. I'm going to be sober-minded today. I'm going to be spirit-filled today. I'm going to remember that my purpose here is not just to get a paycheck or to have a group of people that I consider my friends, even though that that's good. My purpose here is to be a light for the gospel. I love also, it wasn't just stealth, it wasn't just knowledge, it was also speed. You know, he was preemptive. He was preemptive while the, while the alliance is gathering together by the waters and they're amassing their chariots and their horses. Hey, you know, Joshua's not just waiting around. He's not just sitting back on the laurels of the victories in the past. He didn't, he, he took a, a, a preemptive attitude and he would, he would after the adversary while the adversary was unprepared. And for you and for me, I just think that speaks to being zealous for God. I think that speaks to us having a zeal for the Lord, you know, not having an attitude of spiritual laziness. Joshua didn't wait around to be a victim. He played offense spiritually. And I, and I love that, you know, sometimes I think we find ourselves as a Christian you know, sometimes we can find ourselves spiritually, spiritually lazy. You know, maybe we are getting picked off by the adversary. And it's not until we go through a spiritual crisis that God gets our attention, you know, and, and we're awakened to how disconnected we've been from him. And that's just because, you know, we've, we've not had that zeal in our hearts for the Lord. By the way, this is why I love being surrounded by new believers in the faith. You know, they're just, they're so zealous. They're so zealous for the things of God. They're like, oh man, this grace thing is awesome. Pastor, it's amazing. Like we get to sing songs to God, worship. I love worship, you know, or they're reading the scripture and they're like, man, I, I can't, I thought this book was the dumbest thing on the face of the earth and now God's speaking to me. Pastor, why didn't Christians tell me sooner that God speaks through his word? And just that zeal is so good because, you know, sometimes as old Christians, we're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we sang some, what do you do at church tonight? We sang some songs. <laughs> we read the Bible. You know, we had some fellowship. Coffee sucked. 
<laughs> you know what I'm talking about? And it's just like, it's like, well, well, wait a minute, man. Where's the excitement? Where's the zeal? Where's the joy? Where's the freshness? You say, man, I've been saved for 30 years. What are you talking about? I say every day is new with the Lord. Every day is new. You're never going to get to the bottom of them. You're never going to get to the bottom of them. You're never going to get to the place where it's like, man, you just, you just know everything that you possibly could know. And so I would just encourage us today, you know, as we look at the spirit-filled life, have a spirit-led strategy for your spiritual growth. Have a spirit-led strategy for your spiritual growth. I say to you tonight, hey, tell me about your time in the word and in prayer. Tell me about that. And tell me what your plan is to grow in that. I say to you tonight, hey, tell me a little bit about your generosity and your giving. You know, from the, from the perspective of for God so loved the world that he gave and you've been touched by God and now you are an image bearer for God. God's a generous God. He gives everything. It's a self-giving love of God and you can't but help to be a generous person if you've been saved. So tell me, how's that working for you and how are you strategically thinking about ways that you can be more generous? I say to you tonight, you know, how are you serving the Lord? You've been given spiritual gifts. You've been given innate talents by God. How are you leveraging those gifts that God has given to you to be a blessing to the body of Christ? How are you contributing? Like, what's your plan? You know, how have you been thinking about, from the perspective of being zealous for God and being wise and being sober-minded spiritually, how are you strategically planning on being more and more of a servant for the Lord? I say to you, hey, what's your plan about shining your light more brightly for Jesus Christ, being just a little bit more vocal as a believer? And, and tonight, tonight, you know, um, obviously you can't answer that out loud, but what would your answer be? What would your answer be? Because sometimes you know, I think that, I think that there can just be a satisfaction with the status quo. And there is nothing more dangerous to your spiritual life than a satisfaction with the status quo. Because there's no plateauing, brothers and sisters. You're either climbing up or you are sliding back, right? So have a spirit-led strategy for your, for, for your spiritual growth. Verse 10 says this, and Joshua turned back at, the t at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of those kingdoms. Hey, by the way, let me just back up and say to you uh, that hamstringing a horse was, and I hope I get this right, I know we've got some horse people here who can correct me if I'm wrong later, but it's cutting a tendon in the back leg of a horse, which does, it's, it's not as cruel as killing the horse, but it cripples the horse so the horse couldn't be used in war again. And so that was kind of the strategy for that. By the way, horses were worshipped by these Canaanites uh, because it was just part of their worship of the sun god. So there were multiple things that God was doing in that. Joshua, verse 10, turned back at the time, captured Hazor, struck his king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms, and they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire, and all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction. 
This is an important phrase. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses' servant. So Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So, so what we see obviously is that God gives Joshua and the Israelites the victory. Um, Joshua was walking in obedience to what God had given to Moses and what God had also given to him. And it's interesting as you look at these verses, what Joshua does is he goes straight for the head of the snake. Right, it was Hazor who was, uh, that was the key city-state, Jabin was the king, who had, you know, created this confederacy, this alliance of city-state nations, and so Joshua, understanding that, like, that was the guy, that was the head of the snake, he goes right for the head of the snake and cuts it off. I love how fearless Joshua was. I mean, there's just a, a fearlessness, Right? He's not afraid that, you know, this guy's got maybe some influence and some power. He knows that with God, all things are possible. And he also knows that if he is going to kill the weed, he's got to pull it up from the root. If he's going to kill the weed, he's got to pull it up from the root. I don't know if you guys have done any gardening um, or if you have anything growing in your front yard or backyard because we live in Las Vegas, but you know that um, if you really want to kill the weed, you've got to pull it up from the root. Because if you don't get it from the root, it's just going to grow back. And Joshua's wise as a military man. He knows that this king has been the guy, right? The guy in the territory. In fact, Hazor is the only city that's burnt all the way to the ground. Joshua is sending a message. Joshua is taking the preeminent king, the, the preeminent city-state nation, and he's wiping it out completely, asserting the dominance of his God over all of those false gods. And so how does that correlate to the spirit-filled life? Well, you know there's the sin that's the fruit, and then there's the sin that's the root. There are fruit sins, and there are root sins. There are behavioral expressions, there are sins that are behavioral expressions of an inner heart issue. I'm just saying that there are ways that we comport ourselves, behaviors that we have that are um, sins that are just manifestations of deeper issues in our heart. And you know you can spend a lot of time trying to address sin issues and attacking the fruit, but it's not really ever going to get resolved until you get down to the heart of the matter. Until by the Spirit of God, you see what the real root issue is. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, when he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, like that last piece, Paul is breaking down. There are, there are sins that are manifestations of deeper issues. And in that particular example, uh, it's covetousness. 
Covetousness is the fruit of a deeper sin issue, which is idolatry. Covetousness, wanting something that God has given to somebody else that he hasn't given to you. And pining after it, right? Longing for it. Living almost in a sense where, you know, you have this attitude that you're, you're unsatisfied until you get that thing. That's covetousness. And the deeper issue, that's sin for sure, but the deeper issue, Paul says, is idolatry. It's like there's something that's become a God in your life that's usurping the throne of God on your heart, right? In that place where you're demanding that God give you something that he hasn't given to you, really you've set yourself up as God. And now God is subservient to you because really you're the God calling the shots, telling God how he ought to be treating you and having this attitude that until you get what you want, you're not gonna be satisfied. By the way, envy is connected to covetousness because our heart can become so corrupt that not only do we want the thing that God's given that person that he hasn't given to us, we start to dislike them because God's given it to them. There's an attitude, you know, it's interesting that the Bible connects envy to covetousness. You can literally start to dislike someone, right? You don't like them because they've been given the looks or they've been given the intelligence or they've got the person that you wanted to be dating because you thought that they should be your husband or your wife or they've got the finances or they've got the job and pretty, like this person's done nothing to you and you know, it's, it's festered, this idolatry is festered so long in your heart, pretty, pretty soon it's like, man, you don't even like them. And they're like, bro, have I done something to you? Right? You ever have that happen to you before? Hey, man, I just feel like there's something between us. And, you know, did I do something to you? And they're like, no, man, no, we're all good. <laughs> Hate your guts. Hate your guts. And, you know, this is the thing. Oftentimes, we can't see what the root sin is. We cannot see what the root sin is, which is why it is so important for us to be in the scriptures and to be inviting the Holy Spirit in to shine his light on our hearts. I mean, that's what David said in Psalm 139, man. He's like, search me and know me. Try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. In other words, God, you know my tendency is to see my life through rose-colored lenses. You know, we're so good at identifying sin in other people's lives and ignoring it in our own. I just want to encourage us, maybe not an easy word tonight. I love what Joshua did. He just went, he went for the head of the snake, right? He pulled it up by the root. And you and I have to have that same attitude towards sin. Well, the Bible says in verse 16, so Joshua took all the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and all the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Sire, as far as Baal God, in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made a war Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden the hearts, their hearts, so that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord had commanded 
Moses. So, you know, the length of the conquest, if you're counting by years, was about seven years. I mean, it's taken us about seven weeks or, you know, more, 11 weeks to get through these 11 chapters. But these 11 chapters represent a seven-year campaign. By the way, seven is the number of completion in the Bible. What I appreciate about Joshua is he didn't stop until it was done. You know, there was a faithfulness to this guy. And he was not going to stop until they'd taken control of the territory. He understood that there was a plan for the Israelites, that God was going to give them this land to be divided for them to inhabit. And Joshua, Joshua, for the most part, fulfilled the purpose that God had for the Israelites. The interesting thing here is this, and we'll discover this in chapter 13. While he made great progress, his obedience was not complete. While he made great progress, his obedience was not complete. There were pockets of resistance that the Israelites accommodated. And, you know, in chapter 13, we'll see, like, some of those were ultimately Philistine cities and, and you know, other adversaries like the Jebusites who down the road became a real thorn in the side for the Israelites. You know, this maybe, maybe could be perceived as, uh, as comp- compromise. You know, they just accommodated these pockets of resistance thinking, well, you know, it's maybe not a big deal and they're not big armies and uh, we'll be able to get through at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, there was great difficulty for the children of Israel. Um, he was faithful but his obedience was not complete. And I think from the perspective of the believer living the spirit-filled life, you know that we need to have a complete obedience. We need to have a complete obedience. We're never, and I said this at the top of the message, we're never going to be in a place where, where we've just arrived, where every battle has been fought victoriously, like there, there's always going to be an adversary in the land in this life. You know, it is interesting to me, while I I do love to be around uh, young believers, I also have seen so many Christians with a strong beginning, uh, with a strong beginning, starting on fire, starting filled with the Spirit of God, starting with so much zeal, and then yet over the course of time, a complacency starts to set in as believers can plateau and become complacent and become satisfied. You know, it's the most dangerous place to be, to accommodate, to make compromises, you know, to rest on the laurels of big victories that God has given to us, and then, and then to allow these little foxes, because you know what they do, they destroy the vineyard. They eat at the vine. They might not seem significant in the moment, but man, that over the course of time eats away at the very root of what God desires to do. And that complacency, that willingness to accommodate those things that God doesn't want us to accommodate can at the end of the day cause us to drift away from the Lord. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul's like, man, I'm thankful for all that God has done in the past, but God's not done, and I'm not done, and I'm going to fight this battle, 
right? I'm going to press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Hey, I want to encourage you. You know, five years into the Lord, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, are you pressing on? Are you pressing in? Are you fighting the good fight? Are you as fired up today as you were when you put your trust and faith in Christ? You know, there's a, a new movie out. It's called Jesus Revolution, I think. And you know, it's about the early days of um, God's work in Calvary Chapel and Pastor Chuck. Really, it's a biopic on Greg Laurie. And it's great, you know. It is so good to look in the rearview mirror for a minute. Back on what God did, you know, and to, to reflect and to be able to say, God, thank you so much for that move of your spirit among a bunch of hippies that our society and culture had totally rejected. And God, what the world thought was nothing, you made something out of them. God, for your great namesake, you know. And, and you know, it was, a, it was a, a social upheaval in the best sense. But, you know, it's not just enough to look backwards and say, wasn't it great what God did back then? No, we need to be thinking about today and what God wants to do today. I don't want to be, I don't want to be 30 years old in the Lord and think, man, my best times are behind me. I want to be thinking, man, my best times are right now in front of me. And I want that for you too. You know, there are so many amazing things that are happening in our country. And it's one thing to look you know, at college campuses and other states where, you know, God seems to be working revival and there's an outpouring of his Holy Spirit. But I say, well, what about here? What about here, Lord? God, move here in our midst today. Amen? All right, let's, let's wrap it up. Verse 21, and Joshua came at that time, cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza and Gath and Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and here's, you know, big accomplishment, and the land had rested from war. So, just as like a, as we wrap up today, thanks for your patience, just as like a, a, a punctuation mark to all of the conquering that God did through Joshua, there's this final story about the Anakim. Do you, do you guys know who the Anakim were? They were giants that had filled the land. They were, they were Nephilim. Um, in fact, these, these were the guys 40 years earlier when the spies entered the land, 10 came back and they're like, dude, no way. Moses, no way. Like grapes as big as pomegranates, but man, there's giants in the land, and we're just like little baby grasshoppers. Like, forget it. I mean, they're monsters. And, and so as they're getting to the end of all of their conquering, their nemesis, the foe, you know, the ones that had caused such great fear in the hearts of the Israelites were the final ones that needed to be conquered. Where did these guys come from? Well, we don't have the time to talk about that tonight. All right, but they inhabited the land, the cities that later became Philistine cities. There were five Philistine cities, Gaza, Gath, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron. Um, and of course, of course, you're thinking, wait a minute, Gath and Giant, that reminds me of Goliath. Exactly, that Goliath is a descendant of the Anakim, and so were his four brothers. But you probably can imagine the Israelites were like, oh God, 
I hope that they're gone. I hope that they're gone. I hope that they're gone. I hope we don't have to deal with these giants. And at the very end, this is what, this is what God says. You're going to deal with the fear that diverted you in the first place. You're going to deal with the fear that diverted you in the first place. There's no escaping this, right? There's no going around this. You know, the, the tendency to think back then was, man, they're just too big. There's no way, there's no way we can deal with this. And what does God say to his people? You need to confront and conquer this fear. And I would just say the same thing to you tonight. There can be giants in the land of our hearts, things that we just fear. And you know, we have the, the tendency to live in avoidance. We have the tendency to run from those things. But you know, God loves you so much. He doesn't want you living in fear. He doesn't want you living as a victim. He doesn't want you living a conquered life. And so no matter how you try to avoid it, no matter how hard you run, you will come back to that thing. You will come back to that thing again. And I'm just saying to you, it will be God who places it right in front of you because that thing needs to be conquered. There, there is no rest for you until you experience the power of victory through the Holy Spirit in your life over that particular fear. What is that fear in your life? What is that thing, that, that deep abiding thing that you have the tendency to run from and to avoid at all costs? Sometimes, you know, even hoping and praying that that thing is not a thing that confronts you again. God loves you so much and he wants to give you, he wants to give you real rest and real peace. And so what he will do is he will bring that giant before you again so that you can pick up the stone in faith, put it in your sling, and trust in the almighty name of God. I don't come to you in the, the power of horses and chariots and armies, but you've defiled the name of the Lord of the armies of Israel, and it's in his name. Hey, you fight your battles in the name of Jesus, right? And the name of Jesus is more powerful, more powerful than any fear, more powerful than any giant, more powerful than any life-besetting sin, more powerful than any root that is taken hold in your heart, and it's not just speaking his name. His name is powerful. You speak it, but listen, you live. You live in the victory that he accomplished when he died on the cross for your sins, not only liberating you from the, the consequences of sin in your life, but also liberating you from sin's present power. Maybe God has just set that giant in front of you tonight in Jesus' name. May you have the victory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the victory that we have in your son. And God, I pray tonight for my brothers and sisters that there would be victory in this place. That the fullness of all you've intended in the spirit-filled life would be experienced God, we'd walk in it, we'd live to it, we'd encourage one another in it. Mm -hmm.